Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Failing U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Failing U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohan Malik and I spoke with Samuel Bazzi, Associate Professor in the School of Global Policy and Strategy in the Department of Economics at the University of California, San Diego. Professor Bazzi studies how individuals and nations adapt to the challenges of diversity in a global world, by examining the micro-foundations of migration choice, nation-building, and cultural change and religion in the state. Professor Bazzi was at LSE to present his research to the Department of Government's Political Science and Political Economy seminar series. Professor Bazzi joined us in March 2023 to discuss his new research, The Confederate Diaspora, which details how white migration out of the early American South, soon after the Civil War, helped to diffuse and entrench Confederate culture across the U.S., at a critical juncture of westward expansion, national reconciliation, and nation-building. Could you give us a, an overview of your research on the Confederate diaspora and what it is, and maybe talk a little bit about who Confederates are in your research? What kind of, what people are they, people who fought? Are they people who lived in the South? Who, who, are, who are we talking about here? Thank you. The Confederate diaspora is, uh, the way to really think about it is a population of Southern whites um, who grew up in uh, the American South and experienced uh, the attempt at, uh, at secession from the United States and the formation of uh, the Confederate States of America um, in the early 1860s. Um, and a civil war was fought uh, between the Confederate States of America and the United States. When we think about who these Confederates are, you know, you want to think about um, individual white families, uh, many of whom had experience with, uh, with slavery, many of whom owned slaves themselves. Uh, those who did own slaves uh, had really kind of strong incentives uh, to retain the institution of slavery. Many of them uh, put up uh, young, able-bodied men from their own households to fight uh, on behalf of the, the Confederate States. Um, those who didn't own slaves were also conscripted into the Confederate army, and many of them volunteered uh, to defend the Confederacy against uh, the invading Union, uh, Union Army from the North. Um, and then when we think about what happened thereafter, uh, millions of them uh, over subsequent decades uh, fled the South. Um, certain types decided to, to really stay in the South, um, in part because uh, they may have thought you know, it'd be, it'd be possible to reconstitute uh, some of the institutions that were prevalent uh, in, the, in the antebellum South before the war. Um, but others were much more uncertain. And many of them uh, thought, you know, it might be uh, best um, for both kind of economic reasons, but also perhaps uh, ideological ones uh, to flee the South after the war and seek out uh, opportunities elsewhere in what at the time was a rapidly expanding, westward-moving uh, United States. Why did former Confederates leave the South? And where did the diaspora go? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of structural reasons why we might think the, the uh, Southern whites would have left uh, the South after the war. Um, the economy was decimated um, by the war. The Federal government in, from the north uh, was occupying large parts of the south. 
conveying very strongly that uh, they would be imposing northern uh, institutions in, uh, in the uh, former Confederate states. That created a lot of economic upheaval and a kind of uncertainty politically about what the future of the South would look like. Um, what a South would look like for, uh, for the white population now that uh, the black uh, former slaves were emancipated. That created a lot of uncertainty. And so I think for certain types of, uh, of individuals and, and households, um, they wanted to flee. And basically, uh, where did they go? Uh, in large part, they went to border states um, because that was economically most feasible, but a large number of them really went west. Why west? Because the federal government didn't really have uh, much reach out there yet. Um, it was a kind of fertile ground to, uh, to start afresh. And for some of them, uh, that meant opportunities to kind of recreate some of the kind of norms and institutions um, that prevailed in the South that maybe would uh, be unlikely to uh, be replicated in the, in, the, in the South after the end of the war, but could potentially be recreated in this kind of open space in the American and what sort of, you talk about institutions and recreating what they had in the South. Can you give some examples of what these institutions, are we talking political institutions or social or civil institutions? Yeah, I think we're talking about a, a mix of, uh, of, of all of those, actually. Um, and so, you know, you could think about uh, the types of um, arrangements between elites in society um, who maybe own large swaths of land, um, maybe have a captive kind of population of, of tenants uh, or sharecroppers. Um, you could think about kind of the esteemed role of, uh, of those elites in, uh, in society and kind of the prominence of those big landholding elites. So I think that's, that's certainly part of it. And the other is just kind of enforcing um, through both formal and informal means um, a racial hierarchy. Okay? And so that can take a variety of forms um, in, in different contexts. Um, in the postbellum South, there was uh, obviously a, a long period of upheaval as uh, the, the federal government was trying to impose reconstruction, um, the former slaveholding elites pushed back um, and eventually were able to kind of undermine efforts at, at racial integration and kind of pr progress towards racial equality in the South, imposing eventually a set of uh, kind of formal discriminatory laws known as Jim Crow um, that really prevailed in the South and ensured um, that on, uh, there were a lot of de jure forms of discrimination um, in terms of access to public resources and public spaces and public life more generally, those same sort of de jure norms um, uh, or de jure uh, kind of practices and policies were less able to be instituted formally outside the South. But what happened in practice is that a set of kind of informal norms uh, could be created. And especially in places where the federal government uh, didn't have a, a very kind of... Um, um, deep presence uh, to push back against efforts to, for example, exclude blacks from residing in certain towns, um, to exclude uh, blacks from accessing certain public services, um, and certainly to kind of um, uh, promote uh, white supremacist uh, types of, uh, of norms in civil and social institutions. Thanks. Can you just give a quick idea of sort of the numbers in terms of what, how many folks from the, from the former Confederacy left and then spread out elsewhere? So the thing to keep in mind is that there are really kind of distinct waves of migration out of the South. 
the period we're really focusing on this uh, in in this uh, particular paper, the Confederate diaspora, is that early wave, right? Right after the war, um, from basically like 1870 to 1900. Um, and our data, which, you know, it's a historical census, it's complete uh, count data. So, you know, it, it's meant to capture everyone. But of course, you know, there may be, we may be missing some folks. But it, at a kind of first pass, what it looks like is upwards of a million Southern whites left uh, in those few decades after the, right after the Civil War. And so this is really the Confederate diaspora. It's those individuals and their, uh, and their kin um, who left the South and who had very deep experiences with, with the Confederacy, the attempted secession in the Civil War, and very proximate experience with, uh, with this extreme uh, slaveholding institution. Right. And so that's why we're thinking about this Confederate diaspora in that early post-Civil War era um, as being potentially unique uh, relative to, say, um, the much larger number of, uh, of Southern white migrants that, that left in the 1900s as part of uh, what uh, in some, some other work we've called the other great migration. Um, this was uh, much larger in scale. But these folks had had less proximate experience themselves with the Confederacy, with the slave-owning institution, and came from really a much wider swath of, uh, of the South in terms of socio-demographics um, and, and other kind of dimensions of culture in, uh, in the South. And may have had perhaps less uh, kind of deep attachments to the slave-owning institution per se, but of course grew up in a, in a post-bellum South um, where... Uh, racial, uh, you know, hierarchies were, uh, you know, were very much still the, the order of the day. You're talking about sort of looking at populations from 1870 to, to 1900, which certainly from a UK perspective is really not that long ago. It's sort of beyond living, living memory, but not by too much. In what kinds of ways is the, the diaspora evident today in the US? It's a great question. So, you know, one thing uh, we found when telling folks about uh, about this work is that people from all over America, but a lot of folks who live in pretty far flung, flung places outside the South, think about Michigan, Wyoming, Oregon, um, these aren't very close to the South. And yet, in a lot of these places today, you see the Confederate flag flying, uh, you know, 100 uh, 50 plus years after the Civil War, the end of the Confederacy, and yet that flag and the memory that it evokes and the narratives that, uh, you know, that, that, that one associates with it are still prevalent in a lot of public spaces outside the South. Um, and so for, some, for many, that's really the most kind of glaring visual um, imagery of this, this, this long shadow of the Confederate diaspora. Um, but that's really the most visible form. There are lots of other more subtle forms, um, and uh, um, this could take a variety of uh, uh, of expressions. Um, but certainly, you know, there's a lot of discussion uh, today about um, discrimination in housing markets and kind of the legacy of racial segregation. Um, one thing that, that that we try to uncover very carefully in uh, in our work is the role that the, the Confederate diaspora played in helping build some of those racially exclusionary institutions that precluded blacks from settling in a lot of communities outside of the South at a time when there was lots of internal mobility, lots of movement, both of black and white across America. And it looks like 
the Confederate diaspora seemed to, through a variety of kind of mechanisms, created uh, uh, norms that prevented um, uh, Black Americans uh, from residing and working in certain parts of uh, uh, of the country outside of the outside of the American South. Can you have given any more examples on how the the diaspora might have held back rights, civil rights, and economic equality for Black Americans? Some salient findings from from our work. Um, one really important thing that we that we find and is kind of really in your face and and, and quite uh, quite striking when we first first uncovered this. Is that you know take two counties outside of America outside of the American South they have the same number of uh, of Southern white migrants that left the South the same kind of size of the Confederate diaspora now in one of those counties you have a, a larger number of former slave owners right um, compared to the other county in the county that has more former slave owners you see a lot worse outcomes for blacks throughout the 20th century. And those outcomes are even worse when those former slave owners have situated themselves inside of important public facing institutions or positions of public authority, right? So what am I talking about here? I'm talking about um, positions like religious leadership um, in, the, in the church, whatever that may be, typically Protestant churches in this context. Um, positions of authority in local government, positions of authority in the criminal justice and legal system, whether it's lawyers and judges or, or law enforcement. When you see that represent, really kind of outsized representation of former slave-owning uh, elites outside the South, mind you, in these important institutions, right, that are still being formed in a lot of these communities in the early 1900s, late 1800s, right, they're leaving a really big imprint on kind of the institutional foundations of those important public facing kind of arms of government or arms of, uh, of civil society. Um, and in those types of counties, you're seeing, um, for example, in the early 1900s, higher rates of black incarceration, right? Um, you're seeing in the 1940s, um, higher rates of racial residential segregation. And much of that is persisting all the way until today, right? And so today in the late 1900s and, and even in the last uh, decade in, in these places, you see worse um, economic performance for blacks, higher rates of uh, um, income or wage inequality between black, observably identical black and white workers. Um, and you see that segregation persisting uh, and, and, and various forms of kind of inequity in, in policing, um, the brunt of which is borne by, um, by black uh, Americans in these communities. It's funny because today and for the past few years, the Confederate flag has sort of become this symbol of counter narrative of, you know, I guess, American identity, or perhaps a very specific narrative of American identity. Um, to what extent do you think the impact of the migration of the Confederate diaspora has been cultural and how much of it has been political? You know, how much of it has been garnering um, uh, policies that, you know, people who are sympathetic to what a certain type of politics um, would like and how much of it has actually been just shaping the cultural narrative and shaping, for instance, you know, when you think of policies today in Florida where you don't want to teach 
certain histories of the United States, right? Like, do you see a marriage between these sort these sorts of, uh, I guess, movements and in, in politics? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's hard to kind of draw a very sharp line in the sand between culture and politics. Um, but I think, you know, one way to think about um, what we're finding in this, uh, this particular paper on that early wave of migrants out of the South right after the war, again, these folks had very comparatively more extreme ideologies. Um, and by virtue of their greater kind of exposure to the slave owning institution. And so they're leaving the South. They're moving into places outside of the South that really don't have a, a deep kind of cultural fabric set in place in the late 1800s, because a lot of these communities had only been formed in the past 10, 20, 30 years. And so there was a lot of scope at this kind of critical juncture of, uh, of, of communities being formed, institutions being built for culture to play a, a really kind of outsized role in determining the trajectory of both future kind of cultural evolution, but also uh, political trajectory, right? And so I do think it's, it's kind of hard to separate those two. But again, one thing I want, I, I, want to keep in, I want us to keep in mind is that there's a distinction between, we want to draw a distinction between those early waves of migrants and those who came in much larger numbers in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s uh, also left the South, many of them for different reasons, attracted by economic opportunities in the North, um, fleeing economic downturn in the Depression in the, in the 1930s in the South. Um, they really brought kind of uh, renewed uh, the, the kind of racial conservatism that those early Confederate diaspora migrants kind of laid the groundwork for. They kind of amplified that throughout the early 20th century and into the mid 20th century. But then what that other great migration did, um, you know, tens of, uh, 10, maybe 12 million um, Southern white migrants through the 1960s, they really brought a religious and racial conservatism to the American right, the political right in America, that allowed for kind of new forms of uh, powerful political coalitions with economic conservatives that then transformed the Republican Party into, uh, into the party that we, we see today, that kind of brings together in creative ways um, different types of conservatives um, and, and ensures that they have a powerful kind of viable coalition for winning national elections. And they played a big role in kind of the pushback against civil rights in the 1960s and through the 70s in the rise of, uh, of, of uh, religious politics and the role of the, the uh, evangelical movement in, in American politics. Um, and then all the way to more recently um, have shaped, uh, you know, opposition to de the democratic transition from President Trump to, to President Biden, um, as well as uh, some of the kind of issues that you, uh, you were alluding to uh, around what we could think of as the curriculum wars in America today how we teach American history, how we teach race in America. Um, certainly the kind of shadow of the Confederate diaspora it can be seen in a lot of that today. We don't have kind of concrete evidence on that quite yet because it's so new. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if you do see that similar sort of shadow cast on a lot of uh, that kind of raging public debate today. It goes all the way back, certainly, to the Confederate diaspora, but those other great 
migration waves of Southern whites out of the South in the 1900s kind of amplified um, that, that, uh, that the early origins that, that one can trace back to, to that Confederate diaspora. Yeah, it's really interesting. And actually, it's, I think in a way, though, it, it also shows the impact of the Confederate diaspora, because even if by sheer number, the other great migration was obviously just much larger, um, they, it almost becomes easier for them to go because of these people that went prior, right? Precisely. You know, how much do you think actually the success of these different groups of people, even if we just focus on the Confederate diaspora, because like I said, I think it kind of goes back to them anyways. How much do you think that has just almost been incidental because of, for instance, like American electoral politics, you know, because the way that voting is done, the way that you garner political power is such that you don't need to have obviously majorities. You just need to have people positioned in certain places. Do you think this is just kind of been incidental or, or is that I guess undermining the work perhaps that was done and by by these groups of people yeah um, it's a it's a fascinating kind of uh, question to think about is kind of how the unique electoral system in the US has allowed for uh, these groups to perhaps outsized have outsized influence on national politics um, and so one exercise we do in, uh, in, in that other work, this focused on the other great migration in the, in the 1900s, is we sort of ask, like, how pivotal um, were uh, these southern white migrants? In that case, from 1900 to 1940, they brought these new forms of racial and religious conservatism to the, the, the new right movement in America and kind of helped catalyze that movement as we know it today. What would have happened if they had all kind of concentrated in dense urban areas in northern cities in the upper Midwest um, instead of dispersing kind of all over America, right? Well, with our system of electoral politics in the U.S., place matters, perhaps uh, relatively more than people. Um, and so with those southern whites dispersed across all of America, they could potentially create uh, feasible coalitions for a right-wing movement that might not have been as viable electorally in a national sense had they all concentrated in, a, in, in the biggest cities in the U.S., right, and in, in the North and in the, in the Midwest. Um, and so that's something we show. And in fact, you know, uh, it, it looks like um, around some of the close elections over the last 20 years in the, in the U.S., going back to, to 2000, it looks like the that that dispersion of the other great migration of, of Southern whites in the early 1900s really did create kind of um, this uh, critical uh, electoral coalition that may have tipped some of those very close elections in favor of the Republican Party. Thank you. I think that uh, the contemporary effects of it is really, really fascinating. I think we're just out of time, right? Or Yeah. Okay. That's all for me then. Thank you. Dr. Samuel Bazzi, thank you so much for speaking to The Ballpark today. Thanks very much for having me. Samuel Bazzi is Associate Professor in the School of Global Policy and Strategy in the Department of Economics of the University of California, San Diego. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to Samuel Bazzi for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Mohit Malik, and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. 
Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lsc underscore us. And please tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening. <laughs>